Imagine having an opportunity given to you. You know nothing about how it will turn out, whether this opportunity is a blessing or a curse. It can change your life, either for better or for worse. Would you take it? I'm Sabrina Lay, and welcome to episode 7 of Inspired by Immigrants. This podcast is sponsored by Rocketta Labs. Rocketta Labs is a startup accelerator based in San Francisco Bay Area. Some opportunities the accelerator provides for startups include mentoring and feedback from experienced sales, software, and marketing professionals, marketing on the company website, and depending on if there's synergy, revenue sharing partnerships, and access to our global sales channels. If you would like more information, visit our website at kyoceralabs.com. Every day we make choices. We make decisions on where we are going to eat, what we're going to eat, what time to sleep, and so on. But sometimes we make choices that can potentially change our lives. This is exactly what spokesperson and entrepreneur Caroline Pierce dealt with when starting her career, as well as attempting to get the green card. Caroline Pierce is a former international heptathlete and bobsledder for Great Britain turned successful television presenter and reporter. She's a go-to fitness and nutrition consultant author of Better Body Workouts for Women, and is known for playing the character Ice on the revival of the hit TV show UK Gladiators. Caroline currently hosts the UFC and boxing on BT Sport Network. She combines her television work with her expertise in the fitness industry as a global master trainer for PowerPlate, the leading vibration training platform, where she is also on the board of directors. Caroline helps millions of people around the world get fit at home with her workouts on FitOn. You can follow Caroline on social media at Caroline Pierce. In this episode, you will hear about Caroline's journey, from how she got into sports journalism and fitness, as well as her struggles of trying to get a green card in America. With that, let's get this interview started. So thank you so much, Caroline, for taking the time to meet with us today. No, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Good to see you both. So Caroline, I feel like you have one of the most interesting and diverse backgrounds that we've had on our podcast. So what really inspired you to get into journalism and fitness, given that these two, I feel, are very, very different industries and sectors? Yeah, they, they are, but they've, they've complemented each other very well with, within what I do. But I was, a, I was a former athlete myself, so I competed for Great Britain in heptathlon, the seven track and field events, and bobsled. So sport was, was a huge passion of mine. Alongside that, I'd studied sports science and exercise physiology at Loughborough University in the UK, where I got my degree. So for me, when I retired as an athlete with bone on bone in my left knee, so I, I can still train very hard, but not at that elite level that I used to. I thought, how can I still be involved in sport? How can I still feel that adrenaline and that rush that you get from being in and around live sports? So I thought, you know, I want to go into, the, into TV and, and sports broadcasting so I could marry up. I, I'd had some experience of, of television doing a show called UK Gladiators, which equivalent to your American Gladiators back in the UK. So I got a little bit of a taste of television. Loved it. Felt that same kind of like preparing for something and then you've got to perform. And then to do that, talking to athletes, interviewing athletes, researching athletes, just ticked all the boxes for me in terms of, you know, that love that I had as an athlete, but, but in a different way. So I was able to combine my kind of 
from my athletic background with, with journalism, with broadcasting. And then because I've been an athlete, I'd spent my life training. So the sort of entrepreneurial things I do now in the fitness and wellness industry are just using, you know, my background as someone that, that likes to move and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and enjoy fitness and bring it to the masses. So that's, yeah, in a nutshell. Yeah, awesome. And how were you able to, you know, kickstart this career? Because, you know, with journalism especially, it's very hard to get, like, I feel like we all start somewhere, even with fitness as well. So, you know, how were you able to kind of kickstart that and become, you know, as big name as you are? So I didn't go down a traditional journalism degree or, or that kind of background. I didn't start with any local stations or anything like that. For me, it was really a case of the fact I was an athlete and I had a little bit of a taste for television. I just thought to myself, I was in the UK and I thought, well, I'm not going to suddenly be able to get a job covering soccer or football, as we call it. I'm not going to step onto Sky Sports or, or whatever it is right now. But what sport is there a little bit of a gap or a niche where there's maybe not a strong female presence, something that's smaller, but I can be maybe a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And I started covering the world's strongest man. So the strongman competition. So I, but I had a little bit of an in and I knew some of the strong men from my, my athletic competing days. My mum used to play badminton with, the, with a guy called Jeff Capes who became Olympic champion shot putter and then world's strongest man from the UK. So I, it sort of just started by accident really. I got invited to a show and they put me on the stage with a microphone and said, can you kind of MC this event? And I thought, well, this is fun. And then um, Eurosport would cover the strongman champions league. So I went along to that with a microphone in my hand and, and got some content. And it, it sort of went from there. So that was then when I did World's Strongest Man on Channel 5, it's always a Christmas time special in the UK. So it's always shown at Christmas. It's like, you know, it used to be that, you know, Christmas time, you watch World's Strongest Man. It's a mixture of sport and entertainment. And I found that little niche for myself. And I used that opportunity to say to Eurosport and a, a producer friend of mine, Tim Ufton, at the time, you know, can I just come in and watch? Can I kind of do some third color commentary, if you like, you know, that third voice? And sit in the back and watch so it was really just learning on the job and then I decided to start my own series I called it at the time athlete insights and it was just with athletes I already knew I just started an online YouTube series with with another online platform and just like talking to athletes and it was from there that BT Sport which is the sports network in the UK started they launched in 2013 and I showed them what I'd done and and they gave me the opportunity to cover the UFC and that very much is what led to, I'd say, me being in America now, because a lot of the big shows were stateside and I got an opportunity to come out here more and more. But I fell in love with the sport and and got my break with BT Sport from just not necessarily, I did some courses, but not being a journalism student, but just learning on the job and and creating that content myself. I guess I was going to ask you, I know that in the UK, um, sports is, especially, you know, foot, football, as they call it, yes. and cricket and all that, it's, it's really, a, you know, it's almost like a religion. You know, I, I used to live in Manchester. I lived there for four years. And I remember that my first time at a soccer game, well, a football game, it's like, almost like, wow, it's not the same as here. The transition from doing this in the UK to the US, what do you think is like the, some of the differences and what are some of the things that you see are uh, unique to the US as you continue to build your career here? Yeah, there are some subtle differences, but it's interesting what you said about football because I was it Man City or Man United? Which um, team did you? Man City. I literally lived behind the stadium. I didn't realize it was the worst part of town back then. <laughs> a, a football game back home is 
there's so much passion. Your team is, is your life. And I remember when I first moved out here and I went to an LA Galaxy game and um, everyone was so quiet and polite and clapping. And I thought, this isn't football. This is really strange. That was from, from a perspective, uh, point, perspective, spectator point of view. Sorry. But in terms of the differences, having done broadcast work in the UK in a UK studio, then had a chance now to do it here for ESPN and, and some major sports here, UFC, professional fighters league. There's words that don't translate, and I don't just mean the usual differences in, in words that Americans and, and the Brits have, but technical words that, that I found weren't translating. I'd find, as a broadcaster, I have an earpiece in, and I'm listening to the truck, we call it, with the producer, the director. It's all a bit more frantic in America. There's a lot more people shouting at each other in my ear, and a lot more things going on in the UK. It feels like it's a little bit more calm back there. It doesn't mean it is, but everyone's sort of just saying what they need to say. But I, but I feel with, right, with right. US broadcasting. At first, I was like, why is everyone shouting? What have I done wrong? What, you know, so much noise going on. One thing I noticed that was quite different is when I interview someone in the UK, our premise or, or direction and, and learning is that you're just looking at the guests. So say I'm interviewing somebody, I'm keeping eye contact with them. I may occasionally address the camera again, um, you know, to transition between questions. But I've noticed in the US, it's much more common for your guests to not really look at you when they're answering you, but to look at camera. So most of the conversation is it's to the audience. So it's, it's just different. So you learn to just have to be with the audience more than you are with your guests body language and, and where you direct your, your conversation. But at the end of the day, I think with, with the UFC, which is the event that I've covered for many years, it's very international. And I, a lot of it I did here stateside anyway. But we're just a little bit less big with our presentation, I think. It's almost like more subtle. And I think here it's a case of getting my energy level up even more, I think. Now, I watched some of your um, some interviews and I think it's, uh, it's definitely, you know, you're trying obviously to be you know, adapting to our market. But you know, but I get called out on that because then the British fans and followers back in the UK are saying she doesn't sound, she sounds a mix now. Like some no, of my words are different. So I have to catch up on that. But I think, you know, it's, it's interesting now that when artists and entertainers are able to move so freely between the US and Europe, and it's almost like the line is blurred. You know, the only thing that is keeping these people to move here is the visa. Did you have any problems in terms of, as you were moving to the United States, in terms of the whole red tape, or did you feel at any time that you're being um, blocked, certainly by the fact that you don't have the visa yet, or the, how, how, did, how did your transition to the US um, yeah, so it was five and a half years ago, five years February, I guess, that I, that I moved here. But my first visa was an 01 visa. In fact, I had two 01 visas before the green card I, I now just got. Um, and the first one it wasn't, it wasn't that difficult, to be honest, that first 01 visa. I'd done a lot of work in television. I had a lot of press. I had all the things you, you needed to tick the boxes. But the, the, the hardest part was, for a lot of people, I think, is getting the petitioner. So for me, for example, I didn't want to move here and just work for one company. I've always worked for many different companies across fitness um, and television. So if, for example, BT Sport was to be my petitioner, obviously that I could only work for BT Sport. So for me and for a lot of people in my position, it was finding a manager or an agent that would be that umbrella over my career as my petitioner so I could then work for lots of different people. And just coincidentally, my management company in the UK, Insanity Talent Management, was setting up an office in the US, in LA, at the exact same time I wanted to move here. But I was having to wait for them to be incorporated into America. So everything my end was ready to go, but I was sort of dependent on once they got their incorporation as a company into America. So it took about a year from starting the process to getting out here for my first 01. Second 01 was very easy. I just added to my evidence. I built up even more sort of work and TV appearances and business in that time. And then 
I decided to go for the green card. So I sort of simultaneously put in that second 01 on the green card. And it was taking a very long time. So we decided to fast track it. Well, I fast tracked myself into the pandemic. So they have to obviously give you that answer within a couple of weeks. And in doing so, it was at that time when the pandemic had just happened and it was, you know, a, a kind of a shutdown really on immigration and whatever. So I got my first green card denied, which oh, to my, to oh, my wow. lawyer, to, to everyone in the industry was like, I know people have done far less than you that have achieved their green card. So it was right. a loss of a lot of money, time, you know, and, and aware that my 01 only had six months or so on it, or maybe a bit longer at that time. So then it was the decision, well, do I go for another one visa or do I try again for the green card? And the only reason I tried again for the green card rather than waiting a bit longer was the current situation of the pandemic went with an O one. I couldn't come and go from the country. So I couldn't see my parents. So I just figured if I get that green card and residency, I can come and go like a citizen or, or a resident. And that was the deciding factor. But I just made sure that second application, we just didn't leave any stone unturned. And yeah. This is actually the reason why um, so many people are frustrated with the immigration system, especially for entrepreneurs and high achievers like yourself, mm. is that, you know, we, we, I remember we had a case where, and I'm trying to get him also on the show, this guy, and he invented um, a very interesting uh, product that helps um, uh, blind people. He was working with Suman, one of our previous clients, yeah. and um, he was literally had everything on the book and one immigration officer didn't like it and they denied him. You know what I mean? So kind of like in your case, somebody probably didn't yeah. like something. And the point is that when somebody gets denied, if your personality is not strong enough, and I, and I can see you definitely have a strong personality, mm. that person completely gave up and they decided to move from the US to Canada. He built an institute over there in Canada in three years that is employing more than a thousand people. You know, one decision of an officer lost the US such yeah. a talent. You know what I mean? So Yeah, I, I always think that it's who's willing to just keep pushing and keep trying. And obviously yeah. it's expensive as well. It's not an inexpensive process and and for me it was it was just more frustration because I feel the same thing I feel like that officer made that decision in that moment they, it felt like a lot of my evidence hadn't been considered some of the, the kind of denial points they gave didn't match up with my case um, the whole I think one of the things with the green cards being award-winning as well and that was something where I, I have awards in my industry and they were overlooked so it almost felt to me like this was going to be denied no matter what I did it just felt like the timing and who knows, maybe they'd been told we're not approving so many people right now. I don't know. So it, it was very disheartening because you think, well, what more can I do? And it was definitely a risk going for it again. Because I think if you're denied a second time, it probably becomes quite difficult right. to, to make a third case. So it does feel a lot of it's down to the luck of the person that you get put in front of, really. But you're, for me, it was like I've built my life here. Once you've had 201 visas, you've built a life here. You've built business here brand i've contract contractual obligations that were already you know underway and still going on so you feel like you're not just letting yourself down but you know all these people who you've committed to in terms of work and, and partnerships as well so it's a scary time you know a lot of the immigrants that that i worked with in my practice but also you know when we interview them on the show they say that you know sometimes the immigration process is almost like a parallel test as to what they're building here as entrepreneurs so if sometimes they tell them no, if, it, if it's for an O1 or for an EB1 as a, as a high achiever, they say, you know what, we don't buy it. We know we qualify. So we're going to try again and again. And it's interesting because they say eventually when they get it, it feels so rewarding because they know what, I, I know I qualify and here's the proof. It took four times, but I'm still getting it, you know? For me, I, yeah, no wasn't really the option. No wasn't the answer that I was looking for. So it was always going to be a case of, well, okay, do I do another O1 first? Do I look at a different way of, of putting this green card together? You know, it was, it was always going to be, what can I do next? 
it, it wasn't a case of it was never a case of well that's it now I, I go home or I you know do something else it was just finding a way really that was always my mentality you know I was going to decide if I you know and I feel like I have so much to give here you know I'm involved in so many projects here that you feel frustrated you know feel frustrated that well my what more can I do that was the feeling behind it so but it, it's not easy Karen, I looked at some of your um, interviews and I wanted to ask you um, specifically about one. I, I know you interviewed uh, Conor McGregor. What was it like to interview him for the first time? What kind of a person is he? And what is your feeling about how he defined the sport mm-hmm. and what he did for the UK and Ireland in terms of taking them from where you, got, you, you know, used to be in, in, into the next level? Yeah, so the first time I interviewed Conor was very early on in his UFC career. So he'd been Cage Warriors champion in two weight divisions, which is the European organization. And then I, I think it was just before or just after he fought and won in Dublin, filled out that stadium and more decibels of noise than in the rock concert. It was crazy. Um, and we had him on our show. I used to co-host a, a studio show in the UK called UFC Beyond the Octagon. So he came on with his coach, John Kavanagh, and already he just had a aura about him that was different, a belief and a, a mindset that I think is very unique. He's an entertainer and always been incredibly nice to me. And I've interviewed him several times over the year. But from the beginning, Connor had not only a fighting style, but a way of talking about him that made people interested. And if I'm honest, when I first started covering the UFC in the UK, so we're talking 2013, the response of people to me was, oh, that fighting thing, or, oh, I don't really know what that is, or, oh, that's, you know, barbaric, or whatever. It was very much like that. But I think it was a combination of Ronda Rousey, first of all, and then very much Conor McGregor in the UK, where suddenly, even if you don't know much about the sport, you know Conor McGregor. Therefore, you have an understanding of, of what it is. And it suddenly became cool and sexy to be involved with the fastest growing sports organization in the world. So, and then for me, it was, you know, still interviewing Connor, who's very personable to me, off camera, etc. But then you're aware that this is a superstar. He's emerged into this superstar. The audience you almost have for that interview as well. It's not just you, your production, and a couple of other people in a room. So it becomes a much bigger affair. But, but one thing I did that was very exciting was after his Floyd Mayweather fight, I hosted, I was on stage doing an evening with Conor McGregor for a company called Kong Events. So this was in Scotland, and we filled out this arena just to sit on stage and and have a conversation which I thought was was quite incredible really from the first interview we had in a small stadium small studio through to you know filling out this arena if you like just for an interview there's no fighting anything like that going on but I think Connor has transcended the sport he's he's a global superstar he's you know he divides people very much in terms of what they think of him maybe the way he talks the different personas that you sometimes see but I can only talk from a personal perspective and he's always been very nice, very gracious to me, very supportive with injuries I've had and helping me with, you know, exercises. And, you know, I, I was an athlete myself. So I think with a lot of the fighters, I can relate and, to them in that way. But um, yeah, I, th- I think Connor's very good for the sport and I hope, I hope he comes back. I mean, yeah, I saw an interview with him with Tony Robbins. He's only 30 years old and he's probably sh- going to shift not just from fighting, but to building the clothing brand, his, his whiskey. And he's just going to become a like a Jay-Z of UFC. Yeah, I mean, no one else has done what he's done. And I remember he said in the early days, he said, I'm going to be the first person to hold a belt in both weight classes. Like he said it and he did it, you know? And I think that type of vision and belief is is something very unique. And I think a lot of other fighters have tried to emulate the way he talks. And I don't think you can manufacture it. I think he just had that. And some of them do. And, you know, we've had Chelsea and we've had other fighters that have had that persona about them, but, but it comes very naturally to him.
you mentioned that you moved to stateside. So how was that kind of experience of you like actually immigrating to the States, trying to build that network? You know, I know that you were, you were able to do like UFC fights. It was kind of like traveling abroad to different places, but how were you able to like kind of create like connections? Cause I, I assume that you started and you didn't really know anyone. A lot of things fell in place before I moved here that, you know, made things a lot easier for me. For example, as well as the broadcasting that, that I'd done for BT Sport, um, I worked with a company called Powerplate, the vibration training technology, for the last 17 years. And we're a global company. And they had headquarters in Los Angeles, in Chicago, London. And I spoke to the team there and, and, and they said, well, if you relocate to LA, there's actually more we could do with you. There's more opportunities for you. So I st- all we did is transition my role from the UK to a US based it was still a global role I was traveling internationally with it anyway same with BT Sport it's like I became the US correspondent and suddenly I was closer to Las Vegas to the fights than than they were in the UK and I could cover more of those events so those two things were kind of the big mainstays for me but it didn't mean it was easy you know I moved out here and I didn't know many people My, my manager had moved out here and she was very helpful helping me get set up but in terms of friends I really didn't know too many people and it Everything felt like I was learning from being young again, as in banking, doing taxes. It felt like for someone of my age, you know, it's like you're, you're a baby learning how to walk again in terms of just the basics of how to do things. So a lot of that felt like I was learning again. It was a difficult transition. We might speak the same language, but a lot of things have different interpretations out here and, and different meanings. Everything from business meetings were different. It might be more of an LA thing than anything else, but there just seemed to be a lot of promises and hope and excitement that didn't come to anything. I felt like things weren't quite as upfront and as maybe they, you know, we, we are in London. So there was getting my head around things like that a little bit that was different. You know, moving into an apartment with no furniture and, you know, having my first dinner on the floor on the back of a waste paper basket, you know, all those kind of stories and bumping from Airbnb to Airbnb while still trying to travel for work and having my suitcases all in separate people's places while I was trying to find a place to live. So there was all that fun stuff at the beginning when you move to another country as well as just trying to, to set up your life and the way things functions. But in the first year, I felt like I was basically doing all the things I'd done before, but from America. And then it was from that second year onwards that I started to build new relationships, new business opportunities within America. Because I remember thinking, I'm living here, but nothing's changed with what I'm doing. You know, I I took a job in India and I covered the World Cup of Kabaddi, fought in India, an Indian sport for five, six weeks in Ahmedabad and Mumbai. So I thought, okay, I'm tentative to take the job because I thought, well, hang on, I've just moved to America and now I'm, I'm off in India doing this job and whatever. I felt like and I was working four times a year in Australia for a fitness show that I was doing. So there was a lot of things that were taking me out of America. And in fact, the weekend I moved here, I was called back to the UK two weeks later for a UFC event in London. So it sort of felt to begin with that, oh, I need to penetrate this market. So I think that happened in the second year. And a lot of people said to me, it will take you about a year to get really settled. I remember thinking, oh, that's a long time. I'm sure I'll be settled way before then. But it was. It was a good year to feel like I was properly operating in the US. And so how do you feel now? Do you feel like you're kind of like semi-American in a way? By- yeah, I mean, home's still home. Home's still the UK, and that's still still okay. home. And I've, this last year has been the hardest because prior to this last year of COVID, I would travel home four or so times a year. My parents would come here. So it always felt like... I can always go home. It's always there. It might be a 10 hour flight, but it's always there. And when that was taken away, I felt, I think even more away in some ways, but no, I I very much feel at home now. I feel the opportunities for me here have been 
greater than what I believe they would have been had I stayed in the UK. Um, you know, I do feel like I'm really thriving here. I don't know if I feel half American. I might say words differently now here and there, but um, even my boyfriend, I'll say, I'll say things to him sometimes and I'm still very English. He'll say, in two and a half years, I still haven't heard that word before. That's a completely <laughs> And I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, people that move here from Europe, it's always about, oh my God, this is so weird. And, uh, and it, it, if you take it in a very humorous way, which is good. Now, you don't take it seriously. Like you mentioned before, people, they don't act on their words. Mm. And for me, also moving here uh, from Israel, it was so, so weird. Like people promise you to get together, but you would never hear from them. Yes. Yeah, let's catch up next week. But it never happens, right? Yeah, that was something that was, yeah, a little bit hard to get my head around because I thought everything was so wonderful and positive and all these things were happening. And then it was like, well, it was happened. Right. <laughs> exactly. but, but it's good to have that kind of like you know what we take it in perspective that's how they are and then but home is always home do you know what i love about america though and it was one of the things that attracted me to being here and whether sometimes it is just all smoke and mirrors but i do like the can-do attitude and that's something that i always really enjoyed about los angeles and being here i think in the uk sometimes we could be shot down a little bit too quickly so for example you have an idea and it's it's sometimes a bit more about why that won't work or mm, that's a problem. It, it felt like, not everybody, of course, but it, it did feel like that. And I think you have a show idea, something like that. It's a bit of talk and then it doesn't really happen. Whereas here, I feel, even if it might not happen eventually, everybody is enthusiastic about at least giving this a shot, being open to it and believing. And something I had to learn to do more here was to sell myself because we're quite self-deprecating as, as Brits. And it, it's more about... Tell them someone a little bit about what you do. They can learn the rest. You don't want to sound like you're being big-headed or, you know, bigging yourself up. Whereas here I learned people take you at your word. So if you don't say much about yourself, well, there's, there's not much to learn, you know. So it was hard, but I am my own brand. I've got to tell you or tell whoever I'm, I'm trying to pitch an idea to what I can do and, and how great I think I can do that. So that was something that was, I guess, different for me and some, a bit hard to do at first, but it's become easier. Yeah, but a lot, a lot of um, uh, entrepreneurs coming from uh, other countries always say that this can-do positive attitude is what allows them to build companies here or build themselves here better than anywhere else because nobody's going to tell you, oh, you know what, you can't do it. Yeah. You, know, you have an idea? Go, go for it. I feel like that's the reason why I feel there's so many entrepreneurs, not only in Los Angeles, but yeah, like just in the U.S. in general because you have this mentality of, you know, what is there to lose at this point? Exactly. And I like that. And that was something that I'd, I'd gravitated to over here and I'd really enjoyed. So what would you say is your advice, you know, for aspiring immigrant entrepreneurs? Anything you wish you would have known beforehand? Yeah, I think the advice is if you really want to be here and you want to do this, don't give up. There are lots of ways to do this. And, you know, just because one door closes doesn't mean that another one won't open. Give yourself as many opportunities and business ventures to get involved. I think the variety is good when it comes to showcasing what you can do, what, you know, the press that you can gather about yourself or even have created, offer to write blogs and articles and things like that. Get as much, I guess, evidence, we call it, as you can to, to build your case. I think, feel like, make sure you have a strong case before you, you go ahead because it is a difficult thing to repeat if you're denied, as I found out with, with the green card, it's going to cost you a lot of money and it's time consuming and, and so forth. But yeah, I think if it's something you really want, there is a way to do it. 
And it's just a case of building your case the best you can and, and selling yourself, whether it's, you know, for example, with, with the letters that I had people write for me, you know, I wrote the letters myself. You know, people are busy and they don't have time to do these things. Obviously, they approved them and they added to them and tweaked them but, and signed them and whatever. But it, it really helped for me to write the letters in conjunction with my, my lawyer that, you know, makes it sound the best it can be and then have them sign it. Because otherwise, you can be waiting weeks for somebody to, you know, write you a letter when they're busy people, you know, busy producers or writers whatever they are so that was something that was useful for me but just do it I, I think there's never a good time you know to make that leap I think if I, I was traveling so much with at the time and I was busy if I kept waiting I don't know if I would have got here for another year but I, I just moved and, and had to work a lot of it out once I got here and that was the fun part you know as you can see even some of the most successful spokespeople and entrepreneurs also fail but the thing that keeps them going and the reason they're so successful is that they don't give up and they keep going at what they want until they get it. I'm your host, Sabrina Lay, and thanks so much for tuning in to Inspired by Immigrants.